We want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. We also acknowledge the contributions of individuals with lived mental health experience. Hello everyone and welcome to our final episode for our Plays podcast series released in association with Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights and Big Health in Australia. My name is Ariba and I am your host for today. Today I have with me a very special guest speaker, Sajida Al-Sayed. Sajida is of a Lebanese and Syrian background. She completed her Bachelor of Criminology in 2019 and she's been working as a youth worker for the past five years. Sajida joined Amwitru during lockdown and has been a part of the organisation for three months and is in the role of the Youth Programs Coordinator. She's passionate about working with young Muslims in the community and will endeavour to continue in the future. Hey Sajida, welcome to our final episode. How are you? Hey Reba, I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I am wonderful. I am very good today. That's so good. We're literally recording this in lockdown 6.0. How do you feel about all of that? I think like everyone else, everybody was just waiting for the next lockdown. I think everybody's a bit over it. I think I'm pretty lucky I get to work from home, but we're still a little bit over it. Just the up and down, up and down, um, not being able to see family and things like that. But I think it was expected as well. So I can't act like I was that surprised. Honestly, I think it's just kind of like a thing that we've all gotten used to. Like you were saying yesterday, and I was just sitting there questioning, like, why are we so used to this? I know. On our staff meeting, everybody was so sad. And in my head, I was like, I'm sad too, but I'm like, I'm not even surprised right now. Like, I'm like, I was just expecting it. Like, I was just, I think it's crazy how quick we get used to things. We're so adaptable, I reckon. Yeah, like, we really are. The human humans. species. Like, we know how to adapt and how quickly, like, when it's, when it happens, it just happens. And you're just like, all right, yeah. My mum and I were having a conversation last week. She was like, remember before COVID when you could just go out? And I was like, I know. I was like, I can't even fathom it. Like, I don't even remember what life was like when I would just go out, when I would just go to my friend's house or go to my auntie's house or go for dinner and not QR code in and not wear a mask. Like, all this stuff, I'm like, I've actually forgotten. Not worry about if it's 5Ks. Like It felt like so long ago that we had that freedom. And now you just can't even remember what that freedom was like because that just means that we took it for granted. The sanitizers were not a thing. Like wipes were not a thing. Wiping down everywhere you went was not a thing. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. And now we're just so used to it. Imagine if someone told you two years ago you were going to be wearing masks and wiping down things in QR. Like we would have been like, you're joking. Like this is a joke. And now we're like, okay. So yeah, humans are pretty adaptable, pretty amazing creatures we are. I know, I know. So tell me a little bit about what it's like being a youth worker. Oh, I can tell you my perspective and just tell you how much I love it um, and how great it is being able to just essentially talk to people, work with young people, facilitate my growth, facilitate their growth. The great thing about working with young people is it's so dynamic, it's so versatile, and it's really about building connection. And that's what I really love about it. That's something that I really, really thrive off is getting to know young people, building that connection, finding the similarities, finding the differences and working through whatever needs to be worked through, but kind of building that connection and that friendship. And I think that's so important. And often those friendships and those relationships last for a really long time. And I think that's really special. Even with the people that you work with, like amongst ourselves, it's such a delicate type of work when you're working with people and people's emotions and people's lives and hearing people's stories. It's pretty amazing stuff. So that's why I I love it. I love being able to just meet new people and like hearing about someone's story and who they are and where they've come from and what they've been through. It's so extraordinary. You just like, your mind is blown. You're like, wow, goodness. And you're sitting here today, you've got it all together or, you know, you've been through so much and then you makes you reflect on your life. And I definitely went off on a tangent then, but being a youth worker is really interesting. <laughs> no, honestly. And I can hundred percent echo that because to me, it's just really crazy how you meet someone for the first time. And as facilitators, you're able to create that bond and just inspire and bounce off each other. And I think that's just the beautiful part of just our role as youth workers. So most definitely 
can echo what you're saying. Why did you actually end up pursuing a career in youth work? Yeah, I think that was a few reasons. The first reason was I'm really lucky enough to grow up within community and within community organizations, given both my parents are community workers. And so I was always around older people who were like mentors around like youth workers when I was young. And it was such a great benefit to me. Like I remember looking, I had so many great role models to look up to who were only like five, six years older than me, rather than it being like my parents or aunties and uncles, which is still amazing. But I was able to look up to people who were like me, that looked like me, that were Muslim, that identified like me. So that was one reason I, as I aged, I was like, oh yeah, like not everybody has that. I just assumed that everybody had that and realizing that I can, most people actually don't have that. Um, And that's why I was really interested in it. And then the second reason was when I pursued criminology, I really wanted to work in the prevention sphere. I really think prevention is where we should be investing our time and resources in. And I think being a youth worker or a social worker, working with young people is that prevention sphere. You know, we often see crime as a very like, in its own bubble, you know, bad people, good people, but really it's not like that. And that's what I really learned in studying, learning about the fact that, you know, socioeconomic status, ethnicity, where you come from, what education you're getting, what access you have to healthcare really plays a part in the life that you lead. And so that's why I was really passionate about working in kind of that prevention sphere, like as a youth worker, working with young people, but even though it's not necessarily tied in with criminology, it's still distantly connected. So. Yeah, those are the two reasons. What about you? I reckon for me, because I'm a provisional psychologist, I reckon because I've worked with young people starting off with at Headspace, it's always been an avenue where I've been like, this is kind of my element, it's my domain. And also being young, I feel like you're more gravitated to work towards young people. Because I was having a conversation with someone the other day talking about how much I'm struggling connecting with adults and how they are just not receptive towards me being their therapist or me just, you know, being a provisional and being in their space and knowing about them. And so I always was like, well, it's the youth. They're easier. They connect with me. I connect with them. And therefore, youth work kind of just came my way during COVID. I was just sitting at home, just kind of like scrolling through jobs and being like, what do I really want to do with my life beyond psychology? I think that's what it was. And kind of just broadening my horizon a little bit because I felt I was so restricted because I'd studied for five years and all I knew and, and experienced and exposed myself to was psychology. So going, I guess, beyond that individual kind of one-on-one to a more group and holistic approach was what gravitated me towards youth work. Especially within the Muslim community, I'm not going to lie, I do have a soft spot for like our young Muslim women. And that's why I kind of just came my way. So I was like, that's it. Nice. (laughs) So we spoke a lot about prevention. And can you tell us a little bit about the programs that Amateur does currently and and how young people can take part? Yeah, nice. So Amateur does, and since I'm still pretty new, I've only been there for three months, but what I've learned so far is Amateur does so much work. And they're such a wonderful organization because they do a lot of on the ground work and they work with communities on the ground. You know, it's not just, you know, from a distance. So at the moment, for example, within the young women's team, we are running a few programs, but one thing that really excited about is our new anti-racism program that we are going to be running soon. And we also run our SETS program, which is absolutely amazing, which is for newly arrived women who have been in the country for less than five years. And we offer courses like um, living in Australia. So like leadership courses, we offer study skills and financial literacy courses. And so it's really about setting that foundation for people who are new to the country, who kind of are still um, grappling with language, maybe with finding where to go, how to go, how to access everything really, how to access government resources, how to access, you know, getting a job, whatever it might be. And we kind of hopefully lay the foundation for them and do the groundwork and just make those connections and build those connections between themselves and where they're heading. And that's all we really do. We kind of get them in touch so they can feel empowered to do the rest. Beautiful. Really, it's fostering a sense of community. And and we're doing that through so many programs. So I guess in addition to our sets and our anti-racism, we also have a lot of mental health oriented programs where we really hone in on chaining young women identity and who they are living in Australia and being Muslims and coming from various parts of the world and getting together to really collaborate and what that looks like for them. 
And with all that kind of our initiatives going on, our place was one of that. So these podcasts were really ultimately wanting to foster a sense of connection and build resilience, especially during the time of COVID. And we were so grateful to have this opportunity to do this, honestly. And we know that it's been positively taken from all members of the community. And we just do it through building their confidence and resilience and using really evidence-based research to support our work and theories as well. So every curriculum we develop and facilitate there is a grounding and purpose behind it. And that is what the community wants. So like you said, we are very grounded with community and community work. Yeah, absolutely. And we really encourage all our listeners to check out our website, newly developed, great tool. It has everything, all our research, all our advocacies, policies, the work the women's do, our casework team, and what our young women do as well. And also our Instagram pages. So that's amateur underscore youth. And a-M-W-C-H-R as well. So we have the mum page and the baby page. I know. There's so much going on. It's amazing. Now that we've kind of fostered a little bit of what we do, let's move on a little bit about us and who we are. So Saj, tell me a bit about your journey as an Australian Lebanese Muslim. Hmm, my journey. I feel like um, I wish I've thought this through a bit more in the sense that like I feel like I've never really thought about it because I've just been really privileged enough to never have to think about it in the sense that, you know, I was born in Australia, so I didn't have to face many of the struggles that, for example, migrants have had to face. So my dad is Lebanese and my mom is Syrian and my dad, so I'm third generation Australian from my dad's side, which means when I was born, essentially, I was really lucky enough to have foundations already made for me. I already had my parents who knew the language. I already have grandparents who knew the language. I had all of my family in the country. But I think the biggest identity possibly crisis that I had was probably just being a Muslim. And then in that being an Australian Muslim, what does that mean? What does it mean to hold on to my culture? What does it mean to be a Lebanese Muslim? And for so many like young Muslims who are born in the country or their parents are born here, often there's like a real big disconnect between themselves and their culture. And that means like, for example, for myself and my Lebanese and Syrian heritage, which I think when you're young, you're like, I don't need that. That's fine. Like I'm Aussie, whatever. I want to disconnect. I'm not that. But I think as you age, you realize the benefit and the sweetness of essentially your culture. And I think that's essentially what happened to me. I think as I aged, I was like, huh, I don't, my Arabic's really bad. I want to get better at this. Or I don't know much about, you know, my grandparents or what it is, what do we do in Lebanese culture, what we do in Syrian culture, and then to find out that it's so rich with history and so rich with tradition. I think it's really amazing. And so I think for me, the biggest part about my journey is kind of coming full circle. I know it sounds so ironic but and cliche, but it's coming full circle in the sense that like I think when I was growing up as a young Muslim, I really wanted to run away from my identity. I really didn't want to be that Muslim. I really didn't want to be that Lebanese, Syrian, even if I was born into it, like I didn't have a language barrier. I didn't have any of those things. It's probably made me maybe want to be more like an Aussie, ironically speaking, but in the sense, and now I've kind of come full circle and I'm like, no, I'm so proud to be a Lebanese, Syrian, Australian Muslim, because I think being who I am has given me so much richness and culture even in being born here, even in being third generation, or even in being Lebanese, Syrian, Australian, kind of having that mixture. So yeah, it's kind of really made me appreciate my culture. It's kind of really made me appreciate my grandparents and the sacrifice they made to come to the country. It's like you had like a light bulb moment because you said you went full circle. Like what was that light bulb moment like for you? And when did that happen? I actually think it only happened recently. I think it only happened in the last, honestly, probably year, two years, three years even. I think even that 18, 19, 20 phase, I wasn't that interested. I wasn't that interested in learning about my culture. Not to say that I'm actively learning about Lebanese culture or actively learning about Syrian culture, but it's that sense of pride, I think, that tends to come when you are, when you're proud of who you are, you're not ashamed. You're not silently being like, oh, I'm this or I'm that. And you're not quiet. You're really, there is a sense of pride and you're like, this is who I am. And I'm so proud to be this. And I think it was only really recently and maybe it was COVID. I'm actually not sure, but I think it was, I don't know, maybe it's age. I'm not sure if there was something specifically that happened, but I think kind of aging, you kind of look back and you're like, ha, I don't want to be something that I'm not. I don't want to be trying to fit into something which maybe doesn't want me there. Do you know what I mean? 
And then you just see the beauty and the richness in your own culture. So I think it's multi-layered, but yeah, I don't think it was one thing. I think it was just maybe age, time, appreciation. Maybe definitely age was a big one. I think as you age, you can take a step back from things. You're not in it as much. You're not as heated. You're not as feisty. I know that I was, I'm quite a loud and feisty and kind of energetic kind of person. So I was very passionate about certain things when I was young. And so I think as I've aged, I'm like, huh, that's a different perspective. And I've kind of adopted different perspectives because I'm like, never thought of things like that. And I think very similarly with my identity, I think it's happened the same way. I was like, I'm like this, I'm like this. And I would put myself in this box of like, I hate this and I like this. But I think as I've aged, I'm like, oh no, I actually, yeah, no, I can see that perspective. And I've kind of swayed and my opinion swayed about this. And so yeah, age is a funny thing. I can actually kind of relate to that as well. I know a lot of young people are struggling with that kind of drawing the line between their family, their background, and then being Australian and what that, how much is too Australian. And that I think pride is, I think, something that's so important. I think we all go into cultural assimilation where we're trying to assimilate with the country that we're in and really neglecting or just not even having that sense of appreciation and pride for where it is that we've come from, our core values and roots. And that loses kind kind of in the process of everything that goes around us. And and I reckon it's a very normal thing to go through at this stage of your life. Even now, I reckon there's still a part of us that's like torn between the two, I feel. So no, in all honesty, for anybody feeling this way, it's absolutely normal to feel this way. I feel like as young Muslims, especially coming from diverse backgrounds, from whatever background you are, I think we don't give enough acknowledgement to the fact that sadly with history, along with countries being colonized, our minds were also colonized somewhat in that process. So even if I was born here, I still had certain attitudes about my own culture that I thought my culture was backwards or I thought this or I thought, and there was just very subtle, very subtle things that I really were ingrained in me. And I think I didn't realize until I've kind of aged and been like, okay, so why do I think that? And is that true? Is there truth to that? Is that just a stereotype? Where do they actually come from? And I think if you like, it just took me a while to kind of take a step back and challenge my own thoughts about my own culture. It sounds so weird, I know, but yeah, like you don't always have the best thoughts about your own culture or about the values that your culture has. And you you can kind of think, especially being an Aussie, like, oh, that's backward or that's this, or that's not applicable. But then you kind of question like, okay, why, why do I think that? And so that's something that I've really had to delve deep in and be like, whoa, it's a hard truth to swallow, to be like, okay, so why do you think that your culture is backwards? Or why do you think that's not relevant? You know, but it's just questioning yourself and questioning your thoughts and where they come from and challenging. That's honestly such an important point that you say that because that's pretty much what I do at my work, challenging all these irrational beliefs and irrational thoughts that come our way. And that is what we need to kind of as individuals start to do. If we are looking at one perspective, why aren't we looking at the other side? Why is it that we're gravitating to the more, oh, this is the more, you know, popular side and this is the more side that people like to, you know, go to and therefore I'm also going to follow this kind of track and this route. Um, But why aren't we challenging even that belief in itself? If we can go that way, why can't we continue to go the other way? And, yeah, I think that's such an important point that you raised which brings me on to my next question. How do you maintain your identity and who you are and your culture? Because you had like this full circle moment and the back and forth. How are you going to maintain that, your your roots, your values, and be proud of it in a first world country? It's mm, a really deep question. I think one thing that I've realized or learned, and it's obviously not the be all and end all, but something that's worked for me in kind of seeing a world or a society that's ever changing and that in a society that the values of society are ever changing. And for a long time, my values were changing with society. Like I had no values that were concrete in the sense that like anything society said, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, cool. I believe that too. But I think what I've come full circle in is being like, okay, no, not everything is right. Not everything I hear or I that is happening around the world is okay and is right. So for me, that means to hold my values really close to me. And someone that I now admire, like my husband who holds these values very close to him, I used to be like, oh my God, you're so hard line. Like you're so strict or you're like, you're too, like just ease up a bit. 
And now I look at that and I'm like, I really admire that. I admire someone who holds their values close, who knows who they are, who knows what their values are and aren't going to sway just because they're in a room with a group of people who disagree with them or disagree with you. And that's something that I'm trying to adapt is realizing, okay, what are my values? Where do they come from? I want to keep them close. I hold them close to me. That doesn't mean I don't hold conversations with people I disagree with. That doesn't mean I don't accept people. None of that. But that just means for me personally, I know what my values are. I know the life that I know what aligns me. And for me personally, what aligns me is my faith. If I see something in society and I'm like, okay, is that right or wrong? Or do I agree with that or disagree with it? I'll go back to my values, which is my faith. And I'll be like, okay, yeah, I disagree or I agree, right? Rather than what I was doing was seeing something and not having any values and being like, okay, cool. I'm going to let society dictate what my values are. And I think that was the full circle thing as well, because I was like, huh, I have a set of values. Why am I looking for a set of values elsewhere? And so to look deeper and be like, okay, these are my values. This is what aligns me. And I'm going to keep that close. And so that's probably the one thing that I've learned or to maintain my identity and my culture and who I am and being proud of who you are. So that also means knowing your values, but also having a sense of pride and a sense of identity. And that's really hard in today's society. I know it's so difficult for young Muslims to feel a sense of pride with who they are. It's not arrogance. It's just like very grounded in I know who I am and I'm not going to let anything shake me. It doesn't mean you have to be the loudest in the room, the yelling, I know who I am, screaming, because I was that person. I was the person who was constantly really really loud and being like, this is who I am. And and I realized back then I actually didn't even know who I was. I was just the loudest in the room. I thought I knew who I was. And not to say that I do now, I'm not at the end of it, but that's what's funny. Like I, I look now and I'm like, huh, I actually didn't know anything about myself then. And now I have a sense of like groundedness that I'm like, yeah, this is what aligns me. This is who I am. And this is, I'm happy. I'm comfortable. I'm proud of who I am. I think there's so many important points that you mentioned there, but most importantly, it was really that self-realization and looking internally within yourself as an individual rather than externally and your surroundings outside. Because you mentioned a fair few things. And one of the first things was like identifying your values. I think it's really important that you identify values that you're comfortable with where society hasn't dictated you know, and driven you to follow, but also being in tune with them and holding them close. So I think that's just a really, I think, great way to maintain who you are as an individual and be proud of it, I think, and own it. And that confidence, it takes time. Everyone's timelines are so different in every aspect and every part of their life that, you know, just I think acknowledging that in itself is a big first step. And knowing your intentions, I think I firmly believe that it all comes back to intentions. Whenever I talk to anyone, it's like, well, what are your intentions here? Like, do you know? And that's all like I feel interrelated in some way or form. So thank you for sharing that. I think that was, I'm sure everyone would have benefited. It was very insightful. Um, and, you know, sharing a part of who we are and, and just taking that onto our next part of the podcast is who we are and our values, but in terms of relationships and marriage. So that's a big topic, I feel. I think relationships and marriage is one of those things, especially because I got married in lockdown. Um, like what a champ for doing that. And I could not imagine having all this uncertainty and getting married. And I think it was just like now or never, do or die, let's just do it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's kind of start the talk on marriage. Why is marriage important from an Islamic perspective? On the offset, I'm no scholar, no nothing. This is just my perspective. And you can completely disagree with me. But obviously we know the importance in Islam of marriage. Prophet, peace be upon him, says that, you know, it completes half your faith. And I feel like in my only, my little eight months of marriage, I kind of get it now. Because goodness gracious me, I think uh, both me and my husband, literally after eight months, we have a look, we're like, we are in awe of our parents. We are in awe of our siblings who have been married for seven, eight, 10 years, or our parents who've been married for 25, 30 years, 40 years. We are in awe because I can understand, you know, often when we hear that hadith, it's often like, we just think, oh, okay. It's just like on the sexual way or a lust way. Like, okay, cool. Cause like 
you know, I have a partner now, it's fine. But I think the biggest thing that I've realized is it's like, no, it's like controlling your anger. It's not getting upset. It's, you know, watching the tone in which you say things to your partner. It's, you know, not being rude. It's so many other things, which is like internal work. And I think the scariest thing that I think what I've learned again in my little minute time of being married is like, it's really scary because someone essentially, it's like someone's holding a mirror up at you and saying, these are your flaws because it's the only really real time. I think of myself when I was at home and I was living at home and I was, you know, I probably tired and I probably rude to my parents or whatever it might be. You just, they just put up with you. And you've been living together, even with siblings, you've been living together for so long that you just put up with each other. You realize what each other's soft spots are and you put up with each other. You're like, whatever, that's just who they are. But when you get married and you're living with a whole new person, kind of like, who are you? Like, why are you stopping at me? Because I didn't take the bins out or because I left my socks on the floor or I left my clothes on the table, whatever it might've been. I made a mess. And it's like a mirror has been put up and you're like, whoa, do I have all those flaws? You think you're perfect going into this. I'm like, I'm going to be the best wife. And you go into it and you're like, holy moly, this is so big. And I think that's the biggest thing that I've just like been blown away from is like marriage is really about getting into shape your, your ego, like who you are. And that's like, you know, realizing that all your flaws, you got to work on them. And that's hard. Realizing you have a temper or you can be selfish or you can be arrogant or you can be rude or you can be messy or you can be whatever it might be that like, holy man, okay, cool. I have to make this work with this person that I've chosen to spend my life with. I believe in which we believe that God has picked for you. God has picked this person for you. Marriage is one of, one of the things that are predestined before you're even born. Your partner is written right? So to me, I'm like, that's crazy that this person was picked for me and that there is growth in it for me and there is growth in it for him. And I think, again, in my minute, short blink of an eye, eight months, I'm just like blown away. And that's why I just want to say anyone who's been married or is married, I have so much respect for everyone. I have respect for my parents, for my husband's parents, for my siblings, his siblings. I just, I'm blown away. I genuinely cannot put myself in that position because I'm not in that position. Um, so I don't know what it's like. Like I've always heard like marriage is important, but I think the the actual work is being married and staying married. I feel that's where the hard work and that just comes, like you said, it's a lot of patience. It's a lot of working on yourself internally. And there's so many things that change about you because how you were spoiled at home, because I'm very spoiled, I'm the eldest. I get things done my way. If I don't have it my way, I'm not happy about it. And everybody knows that. So I just can't imagine what that would be like if I don't get my way and just how that could turn into something that's so, oh, I, I just, yeah. Yeah. So what's important when it comes to seeking a spouse? Because I know a lot of young girls and guys even I think if we were to think about it from both perspectives when they're looking for somebody they're like well I don't really know where to start like what's important you know generally when it comes to finding someone you want to spend the rest of your life with where should I start what should I do one of the most important things for me was finding a spouse that we shared the same values for me that was my number one priority that was someone who their priority or their set of values or who they are and what grounded them was faith. And that was really important to me. And to know that my partner shares those values. So when we're having a conversation about life, finances, when we're talking about getting a job, having children, whatever it might be, every conversation is grounded in faith. So whatever your values might be, it might be X, Y, Z, that's fine. Uh, but just like having similar values, they have to be the exact same. I don't think you need to find your partner who's the exact same like you, similar. Me and my husband are actually very, very, very different. And we actually approach life very differently. But it's about having those foundation values as the same. And we can agree on, all right, cool. This is what we can agree. Even on all the differences that we might have, we both agree that our values are this. And I think that's really important when making decisions in life. That doesn't mean, you know, it's going to be any easier or anything like that. But that was, for me, what was really important. And I think the second thing for me, which was important, was because I was raised in in a community setting and both my parents being a community workers, I wanted someone who understood the lifestyle of working in community. 
And what that means is, you know, whether it's volunteering at a specific organization, for example, I teach at a weekend school on Saturday. I wanted someone who understood that, who wasn't going to be like, why do you do that? That's silly. And ironically enough, my husband teaches on a Sunday school now, like what he always did. But as in like, so we share very similar lifestyles in the sense that we've known each other for a long time in the sense that we were both raised in similar communities and we were both were instilled with very similar values. And obviously, you know, things like family being very important. Yeah, that's really important to me as well. And just, I think also, I don't know if this is probably not relevant to the question, but it's also about having those conversations before you get married about what expectations are. I know it sounds very like cliche, but I remember the best advice that I got was like, someone said to me, ask the basic questions. If you want to know if they, if they pray or if they do this or if they see their family, don't even assume. It's like, don't assume they do basic things. Just ask. There's no harm in asking. And so that was some really good advice that I got that I was like, okay, cool. Don't assume things. Don't assume that your partner does this, 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 right? Just ask, ask them, what are your values? What grounds you? What do you expect of a wife? What do you expect of a husband? How do you envision your life in five to 10 years? Do you expect your partner to work or this? And I think sometimes those difficult conversations are actually really important though. You know, obviously you don't want to rock the boat at the beginning, but Otherwise, you're going to be in for a bit of a surprise when you're married and you don't want to have children for another five, 10 years and they want to have children straight away. So sometimes it's about having those kind of uncomfortable conversations at the beginning and finding your values, finding what grounds you, but also finding like a commonality. So yeah, that was a bit of everything. And I think that's super interesting because a lot of the marriages that happen in my community are arranged marriages. So, you know, we don't actually go well we do we don't we just people do find love that's fine but most of them I would say 80 plus percent would be arranged and this before marriage concept and before marriage notion there's a very strict stance to it I feel and I I may be wrong here um so correct me if I am but people don't really tend to ask those hard-hitting questions at the very beginning because there's that sense of that interaction and even if you have questions about kids and sexual intimacy and what that looks like and just having those kind of conversations, which is so important at the beginning, I think people are kind of hesitant to have those um, because of culture, because of what their elders say around them, because of everything really. So in terms of this, like what is your kind of positioning on this, especially for those who are from an arranged marriage background, you know, how much is too much before a marriage? Because I think it's important what you just said here. And it's something that I'm doing right now because I'm in that phase, long distance phase, even though it's online, right? There's these questions that have already been established at the very start, but not everybody thinks like that. True. And I think it's a very common notion. And I think even I thought this for a long time, I'll get to it or I'll figure it out. I want to see if there's a connection first, right? Which is really fair. I think when it comes to that, again, when I reiterate, no scholar, no, even this is just my personal opinion, but, but I think, again, you have to figure out what grounds you want your values are. And I think there's a line between having those conversations in a really safe, respectful, appropriate manner in the sense that, especially if you're getting to know each other and it's still really early, let's just say courting, quote unquote stage of getting to know each other. And then I think there's obviously a line of like, that's not appropriate. And the types of questions that maybe shouldn't be asked until maybe there's something a little bit more concrete. But I think, you know, questions like, you know, when do you want to have children? Or what do you see as the man in a relationship and a woman in a relationship? And what is your stance on men and women working or finances or whatever it might be? There is definitely like a time and a place to ask some of those questions. Absolutely. And it's a tough one of being like, do you want, do you see if there's a connection first or do you ask those questions first? Because it's not a transaction. You don't just be like, oh, hey, even in those arranged marriages, you don't just be like, okay, cool. So what do I get get to it? No, obviously you want to see if there's a connection there and build connection first because that's so important because it is really important in a marriage to have connection. Like I personally think that's a really, and for me personally, uh, one of, I didn't add that in what I look for, but one of the biggest things that I was looking for as well as values was friendship. And that was something that really, really was a big thing for me. I really wanted my partner to be my friend first. I remember when my parents were like, so what is it that you like about my husband's name is Majib? What is it you like about? I'm like, we're just, he's, he's a good friend. And that was really important to me. And I remember I got that advice from someone, one of my cousins, who said in the moments, the heated moments and the times that you're fighting, if you don't have friendship, 
She's like, it's sometimes it's a lot harder to make amends because when you have friendship, you still love them as a friend. They still care. There's still that love, even if it's not at a sexual or as a, as a husband and wife. So yeah, that was something else that I really looked for and making sure like that connection, even if it's a friendship, like friendship is really important. Having good laughing moments, having banter, having like that kind of joyous conversation. I think that's really important. There's also different ways to doing it. So I think right now we're very privileged that we have a lot of an online kind of thing going on. So if you're not comfortable doing it face-to-face, you know, you can text your partner, you can call them, you can video call them, you can Zoom them, you can do whatever. You can even play like 20 questions. I feel like just easing in um, at the very beginning is what's going to get you to to be comfortable enough to ask all those hard-hitting questions. So I think that friendship point, is that it's it's really beautiful because that's how it should be. Like you should first be friends if you click because we've all had friends in our lifetimes. We know what it's like to have a friend, especially one that's long-term. But if you can get into that kind of group of things at the very beginning, it just, the pieces of the puzzle fall into place. Yeah, I really agree. And I think often friendship can be the breach of a relationship. Again, eight months only. So we'll, I'll talk to you guys in 10, 15, 20 years, hopefully. But it can often be the bridge. It can often be the bridge into a relationship, especially if that's something that's important to you. Because I remember seeing that modeled with my brother when he married his wife. They had a really good, solid friendship. And I was like, I really admire that. I really admire. And I saw it modeled a few times with some of my family members. And I was like, yeah, I definitely want that. And it might vary. For some people, they might be like, oh, "I don't. That's not that important for me," and that's completely fine. And it's finding about what what is it that you need and what is it that you want. Hopefully, um, trying to find that, and you might not find everything. Exactly, exactly. And it, literally, like you said, it's all intentions. What do you want? What are you looking for? What are you after? I think you should always come back to that because everyone's is different. Moving on now, you know, some young people are very hesitant going into the marriage space. What are some of the misconceptions and notions that you've witnessed or noticed young people have when it comes to marriage? There is definitely people that are hesitant to get married. I I can definitely understand, you know, the fact that, you know, your life ends, that you're going to be tied down to a person or to someone. But the other misconception and the other way is that marriage will save you. Marriage will bring you X amount of happiness, that your partner is going to complete you. And whilst those are both conceptions on both ends, I think the biggest thing is each person has to do what's right for them. So I think there are misconceptions on both ends where I think, you know, there are so many people that are hesitant to get married because like you said, you know, you don't want it to tie you down. Your life's going to end. As soon as I get married, I'm going to have to start doing this. And, you know, there's so many responsibilities and which to some extent, there's probably truth in that. And then the other misconception is that, you know, marriage is going to save you. And for many young girls and maybe even young men that, you know, once I get married, my life will begin or I'll find true love and um, I'll be so happy all the time. Freedom. Freedom is a big one, actually, especially with sometimes young girls who are like, once I get married, I'm going to be out of my parents' house and I'm going to be able to travel and do all this stuff and uh, all these labels that we put with marriage. But I think when I got married, I was like, it's going to be like this. And then everyone said to me, like, Sad, you're not going to know until you're in it. I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever. And then when I was in it, it completely threw me away. Like I was like, whoa, I did not expect it to be like this. And so my perspective or advice would be like, don't assume that it's going to make you happy or don't assume that it's your life's going to begin or that your life might be miserable. Because I had advice, for example, that said, I had someone say to me, your first week of marriage is going to be miserable. You're going to cry every day for the, for the whole week. That's what I did. I cried for the whole week. Or vice versa, your first six months are going to be ecstasy. You're going to love it, right? So when that wasn't ecstasy, when I was, you know, maybe having a disagreement with my partner, I was like, why am I having it? Like honeymoon period, that thing of like, you're going to be in love, infatuated. Yeah, to some extent, there's a truth to that. But to another extent, real life sets in, Right. Someone has to cook and clean. Someone has to go to work. Someone has to pay bills. There is still conversations about who's doing what. You know, there's still a big teething process of what's responsibility. And to a certain extent, me and my husband, we had those conversations, but maybe not to a certain, like not nitty gritty conversations. And sometimes it's confronting when you hear something, you're like, whoa. And he hears something, he's like, whoa. And so I think don't have those expectations. I know it's really hard not to have, but don't expect marriage to be your saviour and don't expect marriage to save you and to be the be all and end all. 
your life exists outside of this person, but yet you still have a life with this person. So like you share one life together, but I still have my life and I still need to find things that make me happy. And at the end of the day, you're still an individual, right? You can be married to the best person in the world, but if you're not happy with yourself and if not, you're not happy with who you are and where you're at and what you're doing, you're still going to be miserable. And I think that's really important that like, don't expect someone else to do the work for you. And I think that's what I learned. I did actually think once I'm married, I'm going to be this happy. And when I got here, I was like, why am I this happy? Or why am I feeling like this? Or why am I having this emotion? And it was just like, okay, be in the moment, enjoy every single moment, enjoy the sweetness of it. But also know that life is quick, life passes. It's about those special moments and those connections, but you think it's going to be a certain way and you just realize life is up and down. It's never going to be one way for six months. Mm-mm, I know what you mean. We put a number on the future and the past, but we never ever put a number on the current present. That's literally what it is. And when it goes above our expectations or below our expectations, there's a part of us that's like, whoa, like I wasn't expecting this either way. And I think just putting that number in any phase of your life is what sets you up for, and I'm going to be honest, sets you up for failure because that's just not going to long-term be the most viable of solutions. So I think that's in every aspect, whether it's marriage or relationships or getting into one, every aspect of your life, work, family, anything, just don't put a number on like your emotions, for example, don't put a number on anything. So yeah, like you said, it's really just being mindful and present in this moment in time, which is ironic because my next question was, is there a timeline for when one should be married by? I personally don't think so, no. And I really genuinely believe that as ironic as this is, and this is if you come from a faith perspective and you might not, and that's completely fine. But I really believe when you're meant to get married, you will. And when you meet the person that you're meant to marry, you will. Because uh, for a long time, like, for example, like I wanted something so bad that like I thought, yeah, like if I get married, it will completely, I'm sorry, I'll be so happy. Especially in the Muslim community, girls sometimes do get married young. Like I'm 23. I think that's very young, but for some girls, that might be a little bit old for girls who get married in the Muslim community. They like, might be like 19, 20, 21. So at 23, when some of my friends are having kids, I'm like, oh my goodness, I feel so incomplete. Right. But even though I don't want to be there and I don't want to be at that stage, but I still feel incomplete as ironic as it sounds. I definitely think that when things happen for you, it'll be the right time for you. And after I got married, I was like, wow, I would not have wanted it to be even a day or a month earlier. Like, goodness, that was such perfect timing for me. So I definitely wouldn't put a timeline on it. But that also says if the right person or if someone really great comes along, don't delay it. If you think this person could be a potential spouse and God has sent you their way or you've just met them for whatever reason, don't delay. Like, even from a faith perspective, don't delay it. Don't delay someone who could be your potential spouse, if they're good for you, if, if everything lines up. Yeah, amazing. I think that's important as well. So in our culture, in my culture, I think the timeline, though there isn't one as such, I think from the Indian culture, it's more like you need to be educated and you need to have a job, both partners, before you get married. But then there's that pressure, that external pressure from not just people around you, but your biological clock is ticking right? I'm never for the fact that you should have a timeline at all. Like you do when you're ready and when it's destined for you to do so. Like I'm fully all, like I leave everything in the hands of God. Like that's just how I operate. But then there's, I think that kind of cultural things and the cultural side of everything, right? Like if you don't get married by now, the chances of you having a kid are like little to none. And that puts a lot of pressure on young people to get married, especially young girls to be like, you know, I want a kid, I want a family, but I don't want to be in fear all my life that, you know, it's biological that, you know, people in my family don't have babies, I'm going to get married. And then there's that other factor that, you know, as I get older, the chances of me, especially if you're Southeast Asian, I don't know if that's true or not, but I've always heard that, oh, it's still being said today that Southeast Asians can't have kids when they're in their 30s right and even late 20s even like 28 29 like it's very very difficult for you to conceive I didn't know and, that yeah and, and like as in as a cultural, uh, it's a cultural I, I, I personally haven't heard that as Arabs but like it's, it's definitely an age thing like I have like it's definitely like you're you're getting older you know things like that but I didn't know it was like as specific as like you know late 20s make sure wow it's quite like 
there's a timeline to having a child and therefore a timeline to get married. So as much as like we can say that, you know, you do your own thing, I think it's important for you to kind of ground yourself and be like, is this the right time for me to A, move away from the family I've lived with all my life to with somebody else who's I've never ever thought I could, you know, envision myself living with? And then B, am I going to be able to juggle family, work, everything in addition to a child? Which then brings me to my next question is how can we balance our family work commitments with that of our spouse and our parents, our in-laws, especially so because it's a very sensitive kind of topic, Um, you know, and when you put a child in that equation as well, like, are you ready enough to be able to juggle all these things all at once? Do you have it in you? Because there's a lot of mental health precursors that occur when all these things happen all at once in our life, right? We get stressed, we get anxious, we get depressed. When you have a baby, there's postpartum depression. There's so many things that happen. And I'm not saying in the negative way. I think it's beautiful if somebody decides to make a family and decides to get married. But I think it all comes back to that timeline. And also, can we adequately balance everything all at once without kind of impacting ourselves as individuals? Because if you're not happy, you're not going to be able to look after anyone. So true. Like people that I know who are wonderful mothers often say like our mother needs to be healthy and well to look after her children. If she's not healthy and well, it's not even mentally, like mentally, emotionally, physically, she needs to be looking after herself. Otherwise, there's no point in looking after children if you're not looking after yourself. So I definitely hear what you're saying. I think it's a tough one. I think sounds super simplistic and this isn't an easy answer, but it really, I think, comes back to where you see yourself. And I think this is why it's really important for yourself So obviously have your own personal goals and what you want to do and what fulfills you, but also understanding that a timeline is not the be all and end all. Like I understand, you know, for some people, it's really important to have children, but I don't think that means compromising who you end up with or something like that. But I also think, for example, I think of myself with managing in-laws and my family uh, and I have siblings that I want to see and then managing work both me and my husband work but I think it's about figuring out what your priorities are and I think a sad that like as ironic cliche as it goes it goes back to what your values are and who you are and what you define yourself as so for me like for example I work three days a week here and I was as you know I was planning on going to four days a week which is like still up and down about but the point is for me personally I don't know if I can go four days a week for many people that look at me they're like why aren't you working five days a week? You have no children. It's just me and my husband. But it, for me, it was a really big transition getting married. And it was a really, really big one. I found it actually quite difficult. Getting married, coming into a house, learning about what my responsibility is, what his responsibility is, who takes care of what, who's cooking, who's cleaning, sharing that responsibility, and even finding whatever you feel comfortable with, but even keeping up with that. I actually found it really hard to keep and maintain a house and cook I know it says, and I, that's from, for me personally, I love cooking. I love cleaning. Like those things I didn't think I'd ever find difficult as cliche and ironic as it sounds. Like I didn't think I'd find it hard to do it, but doing it day in, day out, goodness, it's actually quite tiring <laughs> and it's quite hard. And then you look at your parents and I look at my mum, for example, who works full-time and maintains a house and cooks every night. I'm like, how on earth are you doing this? Like, who has the time? Or I look at my siblings or my cousins who work, who have children, who are paying off home loans, who see families. I'm like, this is impossible. Like me and my husband, we always joke. I'm like, I don't understand how people get home loans. How do you meant to buy a house if you work five days a week, but life is expensive as it is? I can't imagine having children and then keeping up with seeing in-laws and family. It's like a nonstop. So I think it's about figuring out what, what you're, what's important to you. And so, for example, for me, I know I can't work five days a week right now. You know, that doesn't work for me emotionally. I would not be able to take it. And so I've said to myself and to my husband, I don't want to work five days a week. I'm going to work three days a week. And that works for me. That allows me to have a day off, two days off, whatever it might be. Allows me to be on top of the house. It allows me to be on top of cooking. It allows me and my husband to spend enough time together. It allows us to, we still have commitments at night. He has commitments throughout the week. I have commitments throughout the week. We both have to see family. So it's about, thinking about what's important to you. Like for example, spending time with my family once a week, spending time with his family once a week or twice a week, whatever it might be, is important. So we make it a priority to do that, right? 
having us time, having he, he works from nine to five. If I'm working, I'm the same. So we both come back from work tired. We're both exhausted. So making sure that you're spending enough time together. Okay, that's a priority. So figuring out what's important and prioritizing that. And then if it's like, okay, we want to have children in X amount of years. All right, what do I need to do to have children? What do we need to get in order, whether it's getting a house? And I know it sounds very simplistic as like a checklist, but it's also ensuring that your mental health and your emotional health and your physical health are actually being looked after in that process. Because personally, I would not physically be able to take working five days a week. I have a lot of respect for yourself, Mariba, who work five, six days a week, who work, like I have so much respect but personally, I know my body wouldn't be able to take it. And I think it also comes back to just where you are at the stage of your life. So I'm still living at home with my parents and I have the capacity to do that. Whereas if I was, say, married and I had not only my family, but my in-laws as an additional commitment, in all honesty, without hurting or compromising anyone, I, I wouldn't be able to work six days a week, right? And because I'm in that space right now to be able to juggle multiple things and get experience and I'm still in that internship student phase where COVID hit and so I, I don't know if it's a blessing in disguise that I'm not married yet and I still have time to finish everything because <laughs> I'd be losing my mind. Otherwise, like you said, it's emotionally very challenging. It takes a toll on you like it's taking a toll on me right now and I have zero responsibilities you know I'm not doing house chores no you still have it but it's just different comparison to what many very many people I feel like I think I'm very privileged that way yeah and I think like so was I still am but so was I at home and I think you know what's really important I think the biggest thing I think that broke me in the early stages of marriage was my expectations of myself I had so many expectations of myself. And then when I didn't fulfill those expectations, I literally was like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I work five days a week? Why can't I take care of a house? Why can't I maintain a relationship with my husband? Why can't I see my parents and his family? And then I'm like, when I actually sat back and recognized, okay, Sedge, you can't do that. And that's okay. And that was really daunting and overwhelming for me to experience. But when I realized, I was like, that's okay. All right, lovely. You know your limits. Because often we feel like we're failing ourselves in that situation when we when we want to have children at 25 and you're not married by 24, whatever it might be, because you have those expectations of yourself. And I'm not saying they're wrong, but I'm just saying just know that it's okay that if you don't, it's okay. It's okay if you don't fulfill those expectations because it is hard. You're not meant to have it all together all the time. And so just be kind to yourself. Like I would just say, treat yourself how you would treat someone else. Because if that was you telling me how you feel, I would have been like, Ariba, it's okay. Don't worry. But when it's me, I'm like, come on, Sage, get it together. Why don't you have this together? We have so many high expectations. I feel like we're all just overachievers in one way or another. But I think, recognize, like you said, recognizing your boundaries and where they lie, that's so important. And that's how you kind of are able to adequately balance your family work commitments and that too with your personal family, in-laws and spouse. Okay, so in hindsight, what's something that you wish you knew prior to tying the knot? Well, oh, not be so arrogant. <laughs> no, think I know it all. Oh, my goodness. I think definitely for me personally, there was a sense of like, I'm going to have it together when I get married. Me and my husband are going to have it together. We're never going to fight. Like just all these misconceptions that I thought. And then when I got married, I was like, huh. And so... My biggest one is don't have any expectations. Don't have any expectations of yourself. Don't have any expectations of your partner. Don't have any expectations of what marriage is going to be like, what love is going to feel like, what your honeymoon is going to feel like. Just go in, no expectations, and boy, you will have the best time ever. That's that's the only thing that I can say. Yeah. The best, I reckon. Um, And how can we navigate, I guess, our family expectations and pressure on marriage and our personal preferences as well? That's a really, really good question. Family expectations is a big one, especially coming from, and this is a generalization, but many Muslim and culturally diverse backgrounds, we are very close with our family. We have very close relationships with our families. And I think that's the beauty of our culture. But I think one thing I remember my parents told me is like, once you get married, you are part of your family and you are a family unit. But now that I'm married, my family unit is me and my husband. And that's my family. It's not that my family, it's not like my parents aren't my family anymore. No, but me and my husband are our primary family unit 
And then maybe when I have children, it'll be, that will still be my primary. And now my secondary primary unit and my parents and my siblings. Because for me, I think there is a balancing act, I think for many, for for us culturally of like, okay, I want to see my family. I want to see my extent, like my parents, my in-laws, my siblings, my whatever it might be. But I also need to balance my own relationship. So I think there is a line and you need to figure out you and your partner together I think it's really important because family expectations is a big one before you get married, especially in many cultures, for example, where, you know, it, maybe it's expected for the spouse, the parents to live with the, with the, with the, uh, with the couple or whatever it might be. Like just having those conversations and being like, okay, this is what my parents expect of us. This is what your parents have expected of us. And maintaining a healthy relationship with obviously your parents and with in-laws and that can be difficult, of course. But I personally think it's about doing that balancing act. Of And not to say that it's hard, but balancing, obviously, the responsibility, I think, that you have to see your parents and your in-laws, but I think it's also prioritizing your own relationship because at the end of the day, my relationship with my, like with my husband needs priority. You, I think a big misconception as well is that you think you're just going to gel. You think that, you think, especially so early on in the marriage, it's not going to need work. And I think me and my ex-husband actually had this conversation. We were like, how oh, actually need to work. Like you actually need to make effort. You actually need to be consciously kind to one another. I know that sounds so mean, like, but it's true. You just, you assume that you're just going to be on all the time. But sometimes, you know, I'm sure we all feel like this. When I come back from work, sometimes I just want to switch off. I actually don't want to have a conversation. But sometimes it takes like that 10 minutes of like rejuvenating. And then it's being like, hey, I just need 10 minutes for myself. And then we can have a conversation about whatever it is. Do you know what I mean? So I think it's just also like, there's, you need to prioritize yourself, your partner, and then family. So just know that there's an order. And your order can look different to you as anyone else's. And I think it just what works for you the best and what in your best interest and what makes you feel happy and healthy. And it all comes back to that communication it, in every kind of stage of your life with every individual, knowing and setting those expectations at the start with your family, for example, like this is what I'm seeking. These are my preferences. And just being able to navigate that adequately, I think that kind of reduces that pressure and burden in a way. And you're all mentally prepared for what's to come um, in every way or form. So for sure, I 100% agree with you. And our last question to conclude this podcast is what's a word of advice for young women on marriage and how to go about making such a big decision? Just one piece of advice actually is... I think this is the best piece of advice I got was spend time with yourself before you get married, spend time getting to know yourself, getting to know who you are, what you love, what annoys you, what angers you, spending time healing. If you've got, you know, trauma, which we all do really, but if you've got, you know, any sort of trauma that you know that you might need to work through and just spend that time on yourself, because I think, as soon as you get married, it's not that you don't have time to, no, but I think there is a, you spend a lot of time maintaining and fostering a relationship with someone that often you can, you can neglect yourself in that process. So I think my biggest piece of advice is just start working on yourself, start spending time with yourself, learn, learn about yourself. What do you love doing? Who are you? Who's Reba? Who's Sajid? Like, who am I? And what do I love? And who, just who am I? And so I think, once you do that, it's a lot clearer in figuring out, you know, all the other questions of who you want to marry and where you want to be in five years and all these other questions that come along with knowing yourself. I think once you get to know who you are and like feeling comfortable in your own skin, I think the rest can kind of come a lot easier. So that was the best piece of advice I got before I got married. And that's beautiful because the journey of self-love and self-appreciation is ever growing. But if you have a strong foundation of it at the very beginning, it's only going to make every step of the way just a tad bit easier than if you were a little like, oh, I don't really know who I am and, you know, me. So absolutely beautiful advice. Thank you so much, Sajida, for your time and taking that time out today. No worries. That concludes today's final podcast. It was so lovely engaging this conversation with you, Saj, and I'm sure our listeners benefited as well. If any point during this podcast you felt distressed, we encourage you to contact the following helplines, which are listed in the description box below. And please go check out our Instagram page at ANWCHR underscore youth and at ANWCHR and give us a follow. Links are provided in the description box as always. And um, reach out if you have any comments or questions and concerns. We can't kind of wait to see your collective feedback because this is our last ever episode and it's a bittersweet moment for me because this was my baby and I don't know how I feel about leaving it behind. But 
I usually say until next time, but this time it's gonna be. <laughs> yeah, I have. I literally have until next time written, and I feel so emotional right now because there is no next time. <laughs> well, you should be, as someone who's listened to the podcast, you should be so proud of yourself. It was such an amazing series. Um, the podcasts were absolutely amazing, and I'm sure all of us, including all the other listeners, benefited greatly. Thank you so much, honestly, for all your support and all your encouragement thus far. And we can't wait as amateurs to just bring out great things for our community and and all members of our society to just benefit somehow one way or another. Reach out on our Insta pages if you have any questions and I wish everyone the best.